Paleo nerds. Two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds. Because deep time will blow your mind. It's always a delight to see your smiling face, man. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Doing good. I'm really excited. We've got another fantastic guest today. But before that... I'm getting chills down my spine, man. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, I'll bet you are. You said you woke up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat about our guest or what? No, while well, we study up on our guests and stuff, yeah. and I've been, you know, reading a lot of books and watching a lot of TV episodes in preparation for this, and I realized that... You know, maybe I, I go way deep because I got up in the middle of the night. My my wife had let, left the toilet seat down, and I went, <gasps> because it looked like a Tiktaalik head. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, and then my little brain started thinking, yeah, wow. Like, you know, think of Tiktaalik as like this, you know, like. Okay, describe flat. what a Tiktaalik is, please. It's a big, flat-headed, uh, lobe-finned fish that uh, is... To crawl up out of land, you know, uh, onto the land. Actually, there's a whole progression, and we're going to nerd out yeah, way deep yeah. with our uh, with our guest. Yeah. There's Arthur. I see Arthur in the background there. You know, he's a uh, descendant of lobefin fish, too. Same we're fish. We're all descendant of lobefin fish. Well, not all of us are, you know, I mean, are, uh, are rayfin fish or not. What, some of us are more primate than others? <laughs> some, of, some of us are a lot fishier. Um, so you um, had a personal scare and it kind of subsided. Apparently, uh, I saw some unbelievable videos of water rushing down Creek Street, downtown Ketchikan, where all these historic buildings are on wooden stilts around this normally fairly docile creek. And the water was rushing like it looks like uh, my backyard during the Southern California rains. And these are historic buildings built on wooden pilings. And they're yeah. all basically old whorehouses, you know, old brothels yeah. Yeah. from back in the day. And, yeah, I, I thought the day would come when, you know, we well, get so shop, much rain. Your shop is on this boardwalk. Yeah, yeah, we're hanging right over the creek. You can fish from our window. We can You right. can actually fish from the window. And, as I'm sure some of the ladies of the night did, they would have the line out the window. Anyways, uh, but I knew the day would come. Well, catching, you know, catching unsuspecting I don't Johns. Know, man. <laughs> it's a little something on the side. I don't know, but just the idea that you know, with global warming and more intense uh, weather systems, the day would come, and <laughs> the day almost came. The water was raging. It's been raining so much. In fact, we talked about this in another episode where I was afraid this would happen when they have, they had, you know, when the front page article is, don't worry about the dam, you need to worry about the dam. Yeah. And of course, later that night, they were so worried. So you're worried that these wooden pilings would fail and all these buildings would fall into the creek. Well, if you have massive trees coming down oh, at a huge right. velocity, ripping out oh, stuff. okay. But also, if the dam breaches, which is the reservoir at the head of the creek, if that breaches or if it goes over that or that dam bursts, and these dams are built in the 1930s, 
that's a huge torrent of water coming down, and all the buildings would go out yeah, to sea. So. You need not say more. But I have a question. Uh, you mentioned something about there was a flood back in the 20s, and a guy woke up in a floating house because... <laughs> Actually, it was 19, 1956. Oh. Uh, the Arctic oh. Bar, which is right. here in Ketchikan on the waterfront, actually used to be on Creek Street. <laughs> and what and it was at the mouth of the creek, and there was a massive uh, storm system, a huge surge, and it <laughs> washed, it literally washed the entire Arctic Bar out to sea. And they recovered it, and there was a guy actually sleeping upstairs. Was uh, it Otis the Drunk? (laughs) (laughs) Who apparently went out to sea with the bar. and That's great. uh, I just didn't want to have that happen while we were, you know, my we were packing t-shirts so anyways we survived yeah the water has subsided knock on wood anyways and now let's get prehistoric man shall we yeah let's get prehistoric so uh our guest today uh is prolific and uh the the amount of research papers he's written uh is mind-boggling and uh it's funny in in the homework preparation for this episode you sent me a, a paper that he co-authored recently. It's called The Future of the Fossil Record. Yeah. And you said, try and decipher this. And you <laughs> are right. It was just absolutely... I had to stop and reread sentences. That's how dense it is. Dense. And I had to look up all these words and, and definitions of... It's clearly written, very complex... For a scientist. Science and... You know, if anything, that's a critique that I would have is I think there were fascinating things in that. But within a paragraph, I was like, oh, my head is you know, right. hurting. Can somebody write this in uh, high school language for me so I can get it? You know, uh, but right, uh, right. there's no, a, I, I understand uh, that point of view. Yeah, it would be great if it was more accessible. Well, you know, that's why our guest, Neil, Neil Shubin, Dr. Neil Shubin. I'm so excited to have him on the show. But that's why we need popular science books and TV series. And that's when they really do take it to... But that's what he's done. He has uh, put together some Nova television specials, which are absolutely, really wonderful, produced, and easy to understand television documentaries on paleontology. And it's it's really some of the best stuff I've seen. Agreed. And uh, it really makes evolution understandable... Yeah. When I tell people that they're a fish and they look at me like, what? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? I, I wear my silly T-shirts. I do some of my exhibits. But, you know, go watch one of Neil's Nova shows and you'll get it. Yeah. It's called Your Inner Fish on PBS Nova. That's right. And a great book. So let's call him up, dude, and uh, let's have some fun. This is going to be great. Call Dr. Neil Schubert. Let's use the old, can we do the rotary thing again? I like that one. I was going to do that horrible sound of the modem. Remember the oh, modem? Yeah, let's do the modem. Yeah, let's get all... Um... Oh, it's so horrible. It's such a horrible sound. But here it is. Hey, Dave, meet Neil Shubin, paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, professor of organismal biology and anatomy at the University of Chicago, Provost of the Field Museum of Natural History, host of a very popular Nova TV series, and author of numerous popular science books, Neil. It is so cool, so wonderful to have a fellow Loeb fan aficionado on the show here, man. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Great to meet you. A very special event is happening December 22nd. 
You mean I turned 60 years old? No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Oh, no, 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 The conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. Well, that happens to be my birthday as well. Yeah, so, I know. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking more hitting the big six zero. I was thinking not of the planets. How does that feel? Uh, a little creaky, I got to say. I, you know, these workouts that I do to get ready for field work, or I have to be a little more ginger with them <laughs> than I was when I was in my 20s. Yeah. I, I wake up every day with a new pain, a new mysterious pain. So, uh, yeah, Neil, I'm well beyond that mark myself. So, yeah. Yeah, well, you're the old man here, Ray. Neil, yeah, first question. Are you a paleo nerd? I am a paleo nerd. I've been a paleo nerd proudly since I was in the under 10 years old. Um, you know, I'm one of those people, you know, I didn't love dinosaurs as a kid. I would, <gasps> never went through a dinosaur. No, no, I was wondering if you were like one of my paleo nerd type people. How did you get into it then? I just really loved National Geographic documentaries. I loved like the Jane Goodall, Louis Leakey, those sorts of things. And so I was more on the hominid end. I was thinking, oh yeah, I want to go to Africa and I would find you like in you know, all kinds of missing links, right? We now know that doesn't exist. <laughs> that, that term is wrong, but I wanted to find missing links when I was nine years old. Um, and I also loved archeology span a lot. I loved Egyptology. You know, I knew I wanted to dig into the past. And so I was always a nerd in that way, wanting to dig. And then I did eventually went, went through a dinosaur phase, but that was much later uh, in graduate school, <laughs> most, you know, 20 years after most people. Ah, uh, <laughs> wow, that's cool. So uh, you were in the Philly area. You got to go to all kinds of museums. You grew up outside of Philadelphia? Yeah, I did. I grew up in the burbs of Philly, which is not like, you know, dinosaur, or, you know, fossil hunting heaven. Um, but there was the Academy of Natural Sciences, you know, and, and I ended up, you know, hanging out there a lot, looking forward to my favorite days in school were when we like skip class and we do a field trip to the Academy of Natural Sciences, you know, and it was just I actually learned more in that setting, you know, than sitting in a class being droned at for an hour. And, I, and I, 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 those were times I took with me. So my mom and dad used to take me a lot there, went to the American Museum in New York. So those museums are really a big deal for me. Yeah, they were, they were pivotal in my uh, upbringing, too, when I finally got to go to the Smithsonian. The Academy of Natural Sciences is the oldest natural history museum in the United States, right? Yeah, that's correct. And some really great historical collections, you know. So, Wait, which one is that? Is that in Philly? Oh, they have Thomas Jefferson's collections from, yeah. oh, yeah. I mean, some of his mammoths and things. Um, you know, so Lewis and Clark materials. Oh, wow. I mean, it was like, so Ted Deschler um, is a curator there, vertebrate paleontology curator. And he was a graduate student with me when I taught at the University of Pennsylvania. So we go back way, like three decades. I'm kind of connected to Ted because I had an exhibit there. And I, I didn't realize until really researching for the show that he was a student of yours. Yeah, he was. And I remember him coming to me saying, I want to do a thesis. I got, you know, young kids, you know, I want to do something reasonably local, but I, you know, I, I kind of want to do something geological, but also paleontological. And so we had all kinds of ideas. We had one idea that he would work on Triassic age rocks around Philly, which there are plenty. It's just the exposures aren't really great, you know, in, in the suburbs. <laughs> you have housing developments, right? right. <laughs> like Badlands, right? And so, um, but it, it turned out that there was um, a lot of Devonian age rock. That is rock that's about 360 to 370 million years old. Uh, that, that's exactly, you're holding up a rock from the Devonian of Pennsylvania. It looks beautiful. We see all this, there's the scale right in there, a beautiful, um, a beautiful scale of a uh, poorly performed fish. Uh, this, oh, is, yeah, this is from Red Hill. Red Hill. Yeah. Hey, so what happened? Up again. I'm going to take a photo there, Ray. So Ted gave me this. I didn't mean to interrupt the story. I was excited. So anyways, <laughs> so tell, keep, keep Control up with the yourself. Yeah, no, no. So basically that site we discovered in one of our trips. So what happened was, 
we, um, so he decided, okay, let's do Devonian. You know, we're going to look for like early land living animals. The payoff would be huge. And there was a lot of this rock all over Pennsylvania. You know, whenever the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation <laughs> built a new road in central Pennsylvania, they would cut through bedrock. And more often than not, when we were working there, they were cutting through Devonian age bedrock, which is kind of yeah. perfect. So we'd follow them around. We also had field notes of a Harvard team that tried to find fossils there and actually had some success oh. uh, a few couple decades before. And so I remember the first day we went to this place called Red Hill, which is a big red hill in central Pennsylvania, you know, right. about an hour north of State College. It was a rainy day and we were like standing there with the old field notes of some of the Harvard folks who worked there decades before. And we weren't seeing anything. And I remember looking down and there was a piece of bone sticking out. Wow. And so I said to Ted, I said, you know. Was that the scapula that you found in the. No, 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 no. This is just like a fragment like what Ray just showed was right. uh, like a scale of a, of a lobefin fish. And um, I remember I remember saying to Ted, like, Ted, dude. I think that's how we called each other at the time. <laughs> like, Ted, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, um, you may want to return here when it's not wet because I think there's going to be a ton of fossils. And he says, okay, I'll do that. Because I was going to. Um, I was going to Greenland that summer for Triassic Age, a different expedition. And so I got home and Ted calls me up and says, uh, you won't believe it. I think I found a shoulder of a tetrapod. I'm saying, Ted, <laughs> Ted, I told you it's going to take us years to find a tetrapod bone, let alone a shoulder. Are you kidding me? That's the one bone you'd want to find. That's a scapula that was, that was featured in your inner fish. Yeah. Yeah. In the show. Exactly. And I'm like, no way. Come on. You, you know, you, that no. And so he came over, brought his little shoulder. I'm like, yeah, it's a tetrapod shoulder, right? You scored. So then, um, then the hunt was on in a big way. And uh, we went, we returned back to um, Red Hill, found many more fossils, working with a lot of people. And Ted's continuing that. So you named that, that shoulder blade Hynerpeton. Yeah, after, yeah, we were in the town of Heiner and then a walking creature. So, you know, it's like a walking creature from Heiner, you know. And right. so... Um, yeah, that, that opened up a whole lot of stuff because then we started to find fossils all across Pennsylvania, you know. You found and, one other fossil there I want to ask you about. You found the fin of a lobe fin fish and you did a paper on it and this was in 95 and it had like the beginning of digits in it? It did. It was a creature called Cerypterus, which is the scientific name we gave to it. It was actually it was a similar fossil people had discovered a hundred years before. This oh. one was much better preserved. We discovered it uh, in some, basically when the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation, they were widening a road in central Pennsylvania. This is, wasn't Red Hill. It was a different spot. Oh. Um, they were widening the road and they like blew up a lot of the Devonian rock and made a big pile of these giant boulders of Devonian rock. So Ted and I were like, hey, let's check out the boulders. It's all fresh <laughs> rock. So we go there and we started to find like scales and things like that, teeth, isolated teeth. And then on the side of one of these blocks, it looked like there were lots of little bones sticking out. So we um, we put the big boulder down by the road and said, look, we'll collect this later in the day. You know, we're going to, you know, but we'll, you know, we'll come back for it. It's a big, heavy boulder. We don't want to drive around with it, you know, waste gas and stuff. So we did our business and then we're about, oh, 45 minutes away. And we, I said, okay, Ted, it's time to go home. It's a long day. So it's, you know, it's a five hour drive home, four and a half hour drive home. And he says, oh, we got to pick up that block. I'm like, ow, leave the block. Yeah, it's just a bunch of fragments of stuff sticking out there. He says, no, let's pick it up. I have a good feeling about it. I'm like, oh, sure, okay. So we drove there. 
took the block back and we're joking all the whole way back saying, oh, what if there's like a fin in this block? Yeah, who knows? Well, that'd be funny. Um, yeah, it was funny because then the block was prepared out about a month later. It was like, there was a fin in that block. And not only was there a fin in that block, it was a fin the size of like a ping pong paddle that for all the world clearly had a humerus, a radius, an ulna, you know, arm bones, and uh, maybe like things that looked like digits. So that was kind of cool. Is this, yeah. is this like Pandorichthys? It's a little bit, uh, no, this is a different invention of them. So this is deeper in the paleontological tree. Pandorichthys is something that's a little bit more closely related to Tiktaalik rosea, which right, is. Right, Well, my question is, and I'm, I'm going to dive deep into the lobe fin stuff here, is Elpistostege, you know, John Long and his group, that's a little closer to the tetrapod line now because it has those digits. Well, no, I mean, I think that you can go back and forth on that. I think it's actually an unresolved part of the tree. They're claiming that. Aha. But the reality is, oh. Tiktaalik has, does not have an operculum, whereas uh, Elpistostegi does, okay, which is a big deal. Can you define operculum? Operculum is a big bony flap that covers the gills. Very fish-like characteristic. Elpistostegi has one, but Tiktaalik, like tetrapods, does not. Um, the other thing is, one thing that Elpistostegi has that's really nice is it's a much more complete fin than any of the fins we discovered for Tiktaalik, particularly in the terminal end. And so what you do have is you have these little blobs there that do appear in some cases to be like, look like a little bit like the proto digits. But it looks like Tiktaalik has those too. It's just they're not as well preserved. Um, so I would say Elpistostegi is probably, um, is closely related to tetrapods. Probably I would put it in a branch with Tiktaalik. They're kind of hard to tell apart in a lot of ways. The skull's very similar, except for that, the gill flap. The limb, the, the, the fins are very similar. They're very similar animals in a lot of ways. What they tell me, really importantly, is that there are a lot more of these creatures to discover in the right. fossil record. And then there's the tantalizing footprints from like millions of years before that. That like Yeah, so that's the other thing. Are those the footprints in Wales? Uh, no, so they're footprints in Ireland. There are footprints in Poland. Right. Um, there are footprints in a lot of places. Something walking in the mud. Clearly something is walking in the mud. The question is, and you know, they do footprints, you know, you can see it beautifully. Um, the question really is, is are those trackways, and they're definitively trackways, you know, are those, what, what made those trackways? Who knows, right? So if there were digits on those trackways, like fingers, I would say, yeah, it's clearly a tetrapod, right? A limbed animal with fingers. But none of those trackways have fingers. So there's another uh, hypothesis that says, well, maybe that what you're seeing is the origin of walking. Look, we know fish can walk, right? We have you know, mud skippers, we have frogfish, we have lungfish, and we can see that they can walk on the bottom of the. Of the I muds. saw the paper that your lab did on the lungfish walking. But but does the, yeah. But does the contemporary animals today correspond with those ancient trackways? So those ancient trackways are a bit of a mystery to me and to a lot of people too. So some people say, well, no, the only things that can walk like that are tetrapods. That's one argument. Another argument is to say, well, no, 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 no. There are no digits on any of those prints in any of those trackways, and so it could be that. And it's a likely scenario that you likely had walking fish before you had walking tetrapods. That is, walking predates the, the origin of limbs, that we know creatures with fins can walk and they can do beautiful things with their gait. So the other hypothesis, maybe there's, you know, some kind of walking fish that's been around well before tetrapods and that so digits appear later. So I, I don't know. I mean, what's interesting about it is you definitely have trackways before you have, you know, that showing walking. Um, but you don't have any bones back there. And it's so far before, um, it would be kind of surprising. And all, the other thing about those trackways is they're made by a very large creature. Very large Oh, creature. how big are they? 
Uh, probably a 10, 15 feet long. So it would be a monstrously sized creature. So that's unusual in its own self. So the idea that maybe the, the terrestrial invasion maybe happened just the once through creatures like Tiktaalik and Elpisostegi, not others, this yeah. previous, because we don't have multiple invasions. There's the one not. invasion. Right. Yeah, more likely than not. And this would be my hypothesis. And, you know, you talk to other scientists, they may agree or disagree. But my hypothesis would be that is a lot of the traits that animals use to walk on land. That is the ability to walk, which is we see it in so many different fish. We see it in all lungfish all the way to sharks even. You know, they right. walk on the bottom. That the ability to walk arose before, you know, tetrapods invaded land. Lungs. We know lots of fish have lungs. We know they're primitive too. And necks, arm bones, all this stuff, these things arose in creatures living in water. So I think the hypothesis that's supported by most robustly by all the data is that you had fish in the, by the middle to late Devonian, say 375, 380 million years ago. You had fish that had arm bones, lungs, necks, the ability to walk. They had all the tools no necessary digits. to walk on land. But no digits yet. Although, I mean, it, it, El Pistosigi is coming close. Um, you know, but versions of digits. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, and then it was a subtle, basically all the inventions needed to walk on land arose in fish living in water so that the shift was not the origin necessarily of all these new features. The shift was using these old features, which were helping them cruise around in water, using them in new ways, you know, as the need to walk on land, um, came about and later in the Devonian. So that would be my, my, my approach to it. little epiphany maybe this morning as I was thinking about Tiktaalik and Elpistostege, that flat head and this flat body, what in the heck is that all about if they are coming into shallow water and they're looking straight up, you know, they're looking up, they're coming into shallow water, they don't need to worry about predators hitting them from above if they're crawling onto land, but if they're in that shallow water, what's the advantage of that super shallow water and that flat head? And then I was thinking maybe it's spawning. Well, it could be a lot of things. Spawning maybe one, feeding is another. Um, avoiding predators is another. You think about that flat head with eyes on top. That is a really common trait in lots of different fish and tetrapods. Now, the style that Tiktaalik and te early tetrapods have is very different, so it's very unique in that way. But that version of a head, you see it in alligators, you see it in amphibians, you right. know, you now, see wait, it in critters. Now, wait, you have enough specimens to know that's not compression from strata. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, we have 20 individuals. Tiktaalik, oh. by the way, Tiktaalik's not rare. Okay, that's the other thing. So it's oh really yeah yeah it's not like one specimen. It's like twenty individuals. Wow. I mean, we have a lot. Yeah, so there's a lot of it. That's one thing that's great about Tiktaalik as opposed to a lot of these others, like Pandorichthys or Apistostegi or Acanthostega. We have lots of bones of this thing. You know, we have them, and we have them preserved in different ways. We have them. You know, we find them fully articulated, or we have them where we found them articulated. And we took them apart. Um, we, yeah, so the, we have many preserved in three dimensions in the round. So there's a lot of science we can do with them. And, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's what's cause we had returned. So we found it in 2004, the first specimens, but that first year we found three of them. And then, um, we went back for a number of years and found more. 
Okay, I want to I want to get back to the the walking in water. What is the reason for an organism to walk in water when it has the fluid of water to swim and swim fast using its tail? Yeah. What's what's that evolutionary advantage? So success in water can happen a lot of different ways. You can have creatures that swim very fast, so they're pelagic creatures that can move really quickly. But you have other creatures that hover on the bottom that live in what's called the benthos, the deep part on the bottom, because there's lots of food sources there. Animals that tend to, you know, be living on the water bottom tend to have some version where they will propel themselves with the substrate. And there's lots of reasons for that. Not the least of which is, you know, using your back and tail to move about can disturb the, um, the muds in many ways. It's much more efficient if you're trying to move slowly, particular, that walking's key. Also where walking has antecedents or sort of primitive versions of itself is when a lot of these animals will be in a current. Okay, and the right. current is right. moving in a stream. That's an anchor. Yeah, it'll anchor, like station hold, like anchor. Like trout will like hover behind a, a rock, right? And they'll right. look up for the, the, the stream of insects on like the surface. Like a right? race car drafting. Yeah, exactly. But these other creatures won't necessarily do that. They'll just hold on, hug on the bottom and prop themselves that way and wait for the food to come by and then pounce on it. And that's a proto version of walking. Got it. Got it. So that's what we think like Tiktaalik and some of its cousins one of the range of things that they they could do talking about hunting in in water in fresh water i live in alaska i live on a salmon I, I work down on the salmon stream we have a gallery there so i'm always watching for 37 years i've been watching stuff happening in that creek and i see the seals come in to the fresh water you know as the, as the fish are spawning but oftentimes i'll see them swimming on their backs and it looks like they're just relaxing and uh, just kind of goofing around. But then I realized, no, they're hunting and they're swimming in that current and they're looking at the bottom with their big eyes. And I ran this idea by Ted Dashler. What if like Tiktaalik was like swimming upside down? That's a game changer. And it's looking at the bottom and when it's because you can watch these seals. They'll just sit on their back for a long time, breathe a little bit. And then they'll dive to the bottom when they see a salmon darting. So I don't know. It's a wait, well, wait, it's possible. Seals I mean, are stereoscopic, though. They see like this. They have stereoscopic vision. We have a PhD here. <laughs> but a tectonic-like head has seen a lot of creatures that live at the interface between water and land. Right. You know, so they're looking up and out and forward, or living on the water bottom, holding, you know, propping themselves up in a current and looking at all the stuff. You know, the food that's above them going by. So when you think about a flat head, it has a lot of uses in these kinds of environments and a lot of diverse uses. And I mean, I wouldn't speculate on one single function that it has because it's probably as many because we see it evolving so many times. Just think about crocodiles and how they use that and alligators and how they use a flat head to hunt. And also it's a very efficient mechanism for generating a lot of snapping bites, you know, like an alligator does. And Tiktaalik had big fangs, you know. Those big fangs in the upper roof of the mouth. Mm -hmm. that, Huge fangs that would uh, hold on to prey as they gulped wow. it down. There are all kinds of fish in that, uh, the fossil site that you guys discovered in Ellesmere Island. Can you tell us the story of how you chose Ellesmere, because I know that you guys were looking at Alaska once upon a time. We were, Devonian yeah, rocks. I still am. I would go there definitely if it cleared Can up. we go? I want to go yeah. if you come back. It's in a wilderness area. Spots. Me too. <laughs> it's in a wilderness area up in there. They weren't like really great. They weren't happy to let us in there. But yes, there's um up south. I know some guys. In the Brooks in the Brooks Ranch, yep. definitely. That would be a place. Yeah. So the, um, the, the way that began is I was working in Greenland in Triassic Age rocks. 
a lot younger. And so I was working in the Arctic. And so I was already familiar with how to work in the Arctic and things. I'd done it since the late 80s. So this by this time, it was in the mid-late 90s. And Ted and I were looking for a new adventure. That is the Catskill rocks, the rocks we're working on in Pennsylvania, the one I talked of, the ones I talked about earlier, they were a little too young to answer the question we were really interested in. We were already finding all kinds of tetrapods, limbed animals there, a lot of different kinds. We felt we, you know, based on other discoveries, we needed to move further back in time, maybe about by 10, 15 million years. So, okay, we figured, you know, we, that would optimize our chance of finding a flat-headed fish with arm bones and wrists and all that sort of stuff. And, um, okay, so, you know, what do you do when you do that? So you look for places in the world that have rocks of the right age, right? So we knew we wanted to be in rocks around 375 million years old. We knew we wanted to be, we knew we, we were looking at places in the world that had rocks of the right type. So we knew we wanted to be in places of the world that had sort of like an Amazon Delta environment, Delta mm -hmm. system, where you had rivers draining into the ocean. A lot of deposition. A lot of different kinds too. You have like near shore environments, you have oxbow lakes, you have small streams. So if you think about where these creatures likely lived, it's not in the deep ocean, right? And it's not gonna be in deserts, it's gonna be in those kinds of environments that you see in these delta systems. And the other great thing is you can recognize these systems geologically very easily. And the other thing is we want places in the world that were accessible and where the rocks are exposed. So age, type of rock, exposed, Boom, that's what we did. So we've applied those filters. We had an idea to work in Alaska. We had an idea to work in Brazil, of all places. Um, but then everything changed one day when Ted and I, we were in my office in Philly. And we were said something, and we got in an argument about geology. Just random, nothing related to paleontology. I even forget what it was. But um, we pulled out a college geology textbook um, to solve the debate. <laughs> and, and the debate was over, and I forget what it was about. And, but we ended it with a textbook. And I'm sort of going through the textbook, turning pages one by one. And oh, yeah, I, show me your Devonian rocks, man. <laughs> yeah, in the book, there was a map of North America showing where rocks of the middle to late Devonian formed in ancient delta systems, where they were exposed in North America. Wow. <laughs> it was like exactly what we were looking was for. Was that luck so or providence? <laughs> uh, poof, luck, I think. Anyway, so we had, um, you could see the place in Pennsylvania we were working, so we knew they were on the right path. But there was this other area um, in the Canadian Arctic that extended 1,500 kilometers east to west from Melville Island in the um, western part of the Arctic to Ellesmere Island in the east. Right rock, right age. And I look at Ted, I say, Ted, do you know anybody who's worked on these rocks? He says, I don't know, do you? I said, I just asked you that question. He's like, nobody's worked on these rocks. So, we're like, so we ran to the library. And it turns out the reason why my, our colleagues and us, while well, we all missed these rocks, is the original description of them was in the oil and gas literature, oh, which these folks wow. who wrote the textbook they um, they refer to it, but it's not, not a literature I typically keep up with. And, we're, and as we looked at the literature, we're like, this is amazing. This is the perfect rock. This is exactly like Red Hill, like where you showed that fossil, only older, right? And we're like, oh, I've got to get there. So that's how it all began. And then we started, that, I, that idea happened in, um, oh, and then we, yeah, it's all happened in the morning. Then we go to a Chinese food restaurant for lunch, and this is what sealed it. I had my like lunch special of like Kung Pao chicken or what have you, but I had a fortune cookie and it said, soon you will be at the top of the world. And I'd like, I, I gave <laughs> no Ted the way. fortune cookie and I said, yeah, oh yeah no God. kidding. I love that. <laughs> so Ted and I still laugh about that. <laughs> I love in the, uh, the inner fish, uh, Nova series that you did, uh, uh, you and Ted are talking and, uh, Ted is describing your personality <laughs> as opposed to his personality. You guys mm, very much so. are, different. are an interesting combo because Ted is pretty, uh, 
he's a he's sort of a steady guy, you know, and yeah, but uh, very, that's what makes uh, a good team. You have to have the yin yeah. and yang. You have to have that. It's like it's me right. and that guy, you know. So no, sorry, Ted. See, Ted is really, really good at you know. If you find a fossil site, he thinks like a museum curator. He is, how do we remove these fossils in the best possible way to get them carefully back home and then curated so everybody can work on them, get them prepared. So that step of, you know, all that, he's like, there's very few people better, honestly. And it's just, it's amazing to watch him work. I'm kind of the opposite. I always am like, you know, thinking of the next box to look. And so it's good to have that sort of balance. Because even when we were working in the Arctic, when we had the Tiktaalik site, I'm always like looking over the next hill for the next Tiktaalik site, you know. Well, what what was it like being plunked down in this vast landscape and trying to find that spot? How many years did it take of that roaming and searching? And yeah, um, that was kind of that was that was a bit of a trial sometimes. Well, you know what though the the PBS Nova special is a bit misleading because it looks like you arrive. Oh, there it is. Oh, uh, and then the the weather's coming. We're going to come back next year. But uh, how long did it take you on that sandbar to find that strata? Six years, four trips. Wow. Yeah, and then each trip would take about a year to plan. And so, because, you know, you got to raise money, you got to do, you know, you got to do all kinds of stuff. Get permits, you got to get field gear, all that thing. And you got to train physically and all this other stuff. Anyway, so, um, yeah, we started in the wrong place at the Arctic. Came back mm -hmm. after the first year thinking, oh, man, that wasn't so great. Did you find anything? Yeah, we found fossil sharks, but we were in the deep ocean um, uh, at Devonian Ocean. It would have been great if I loved sharks. And I do love sharks, but I, we were there to find TikTok. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were there to find TikTok. So anyway, so um, yeah, um, we knew we were looking for a flat-headed fish with fins and uh, with arm bones inside. We kind of knew that that was the search image. The second year we went back was in 2000. Uh, got a little bit better. We were in better rock. But still not quite good enough. We needed things that would. We found bits and pieces of bone. We needed places that had whole skeletons. So we went back a number of times. We eventually found a layer that had lots of skeletons. And then digging that, it took us about. We dug that layer for a year before finding Tiktaalik. Um, and then the second year when we. But a year it, is six it, weeks, right? Year is six weeks. Yeah, but well, it's six weeks, but six weeks on site. Right. It's, you know, 10 months at home. A year of planning. Yeah. yeah. So it's a year, of, you know, but with only six months on the field. Yeah. Now, you love authoring papers on, on appendages and digits. I mean, it's it's amazing. And you're getting it down to the genetic level recently. Mm -hmm. uh, have, has your science branched into the genomics and, and the... Very much so. Yeah. So my lab is very much molecular as well. So we look at the genes that build fins and fish. And we asked the question, you know, we asked the question, how similar they are the genes that build limbs and mice and people? And, you know, what, uh, what are the differences? So it turns out a lot of the genes that build the appendages, the, the, the limbs of people and mice and frogs, and the fins of fish are similar. Uh, they're versions of the same genes. What you're doing is you're redeploying them in different ways. And, and so we kind of look at that quite a bit. I mean, my motto in life is always feel a little uncomfortable. That is always to go into something where you're kind of behind the eight ball and have to learn something new. So I love nothing more than beginning a field expedition, sitting with the gear and the plane takes off. We're looking at the rocks around. It's like, okay, what's next? That's my favorite time when it's like it's a world of possibility and a world of risk. I kind and of is enjoy that, that a polar bear over there. Is, is that, that a polar bear? Do I got to run or do I got to No, no, but and you so, like the process. It's the process that's mm, exciting to you. And, and that's what makes for great scientific discovery. It's the process. But yeah. I want to get into genes and buds. So a gene is an expression of genetic traits encoded in 
DNA, correct? In sections of DNA. Yeah. So what we're looking at, so basically if you look at the genome, take a human genome, about 2% of your genome is our genes. <laughs> but the genes are the part that make proteins. So they code for proteins, right? And so, but then all that other stuff in the genome, that other 98%, um, some of it, not all, but some of it uh, is involved with um, telling the genes where and when to be turned on or off. You know, and so we look at that in evolution because that's kind of the software to build bodies. I think the hardware is the pro are the proteins and the genes. The software is the all the other stuff in the genome that tells genes where and when to be turned on and off, right? And so we work on the software part a lot. And so we're asking, you know, what are the genetic instructions to build a limb? What are the genetic instructions to build a fin? And how do they differ? And it turns out, okay, what's really cool is some of the genes that really mark the wrist and digits in development in people and mice with regard to these experiments. There are genes that mark that region, clearly mark the wrist and digits. If you look, you ask the question, do they exist in fish? The answer is yes. Where are they active in fish? On the terminal end of their fins. Those genes are active in the cells that make wrists and digits in people and mice, but those same genes are active in the terminal end of a fin, making the fin rays in fish. So, which is pretty interesting. So the terminal end of a fish fin is equivalent in a lot of to ways. The, to, to the th inside of your wrist. Mm -hmm, exactly. And so, but what's happened is those cells are the same in people and fish, right? But what's happened is they, the cells in fish go ahead to make the fin rays, which are the spicules of bone, the rods of bone that are at the terminal end. They go on in mice and people to make the fingers and toes. You know, so there's the equivalency in the cells, but they have different fates in the development of people versus fish. How does a guy who is out in the field digging up ancient bones and dragging them back to the museums, how do you then, I know you can't work on ancient organisms, so how do you assemble, you go from being a paleontologist to an evolutionary biologist and assembling a team in a lab. Where was that change in your career, Neil? Yeah, that began in Philadelphia when I was, I was in, at the University of Pennsylvania. And I realized this is when I was a younger assistant professor, you know, many decades ago. Um, I had decided, I realized that finding the fossils answers so many questions and it's part, it's what I really love to do. But to really answer some of these questions, I needed to add onto the fossils another line of data, which is the genetic piece. Because I, I felt yeah. that if you coupled both of them, it would be really powerful. It would be much better than any single one alone. The fossils give us all kinds of unique information. They tell us about the structure of extinct animals right at the cusp of these transitions, these great transitions, just like Tiktaalik did in the transition from life and water to life on land. They tell us about so many different things. And they tell us about the environments. They tell us about what other creatures they lived with. Tell us what the world looked like. But they don't tell us about how the transformation happened biologically. You know, and so the genes can do that. Like what genes changed to, to alter a fish into a tetrapod, that kind of thing. So I realized I needed to learn that molecular toolkit back in the mid-90s. And there are a lot of cool papers coming out in the scientific literature showing... Uh, you know, how you can do this. I mean, it's totally doable. So these ghost genes still exist? Yeah, in us. Yeah, they're not ghosts. They're alive. They're working in your body right now. And they do many different things. They're involved, like they're called Hox genes, H-O-X. But there are other genes. So their function, their function changes over evolutionary time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they're still present. But how do you know a gene that's for something definitively hominid was used for something definitively uh, fish? 
I can map it. I can look at that gene. So I can trace that gene in people. I could trace that gene in frogs. I could trace that gene in lungfish. I could trace that gene in salmon and trout. I could trace that gene in sharks. You know, so I could look at it all those creatures. And so, you know, if you see it in all those different creatures, you can say, well, it's almost certainly active in Tiktaalik, right? Because that would be unusual. For, you know, it's like saying Tiktaalik had DNA. You know, of course, Tiktaalik had DNA. I mean, but you can even take it even finer by, you know, mapping these traits on the cladogram. So, but you basically had to assemble a team. You had to reach out to yeah. biologists mm -hmm. and, and people working in genetics. That's right. And I didn't do it. So basically what I did is I did a sabbatical in a colleague's lab to learn the techniques. And then when I moved to Chicago, I actively tried to recruit people who knew molecular biology and wanted to work with paleontologists. And it was mm. surprising. There were a lot of people who had trained in molecular biology who wanted to add this other piece to their research program. And that's really kind of where it began. So I moved to Chicago in 2000, and that's when we were doing our second year Thictolic ex expeditions. And that's kind of when I started to really ramp up the molecular piece in a very big way. You know, so they all kind of parallel together. The big shift was my move to Chicago because, you know, when you do a move, you get a startup package. They give you some money to build your lab. And so now I was able to build a new lab. And at that lab I was able to build had a fossil part and a molecular part. I was able to conform it perfectly to. Wow, that you know. is that is so uh, revolutionary, really, you know. Well, thanks. Yeah. And so to find those disciplines and there you really did revolutionize the field. Yeah, thanks. We, you know, we're still plugging away at it. And, you know, and again, it comes down to my motto, always be a little uncomfortable. You know, you have to get outside what your familiar things are from time to time. You know, and you do that when you like work out, right? You got to be uncomfortable to get in shape, that kind of thing. But it's also mentally, you got to push yourself a little bit to get out of that kind of easy zone. And what that means is it's not, you're sometimes going to be wrong and you're going to fall on your face. But when you're right, you're going to be really right, you know? And so that's kind of how I, how I approach things. And speaking of uncomfortable moments, um, when I watch the the Nova, <laughs> know what you're gonna say? And and the cadaver hand is there, dude. Yeah. In case you haven't seen Neil Shubin's TV series, Your Inner Fish, on PBS's Nova, you should. It's a companion piece to this interview. When Neil isn't dodging polar bears in the Arctic, he teaches anatomy. And on this show, he demonstrates the evolution of the hand using a real cadaver's hand that he holds, points to, and even dissects on camera. It's a bit off-putting, but I like that sort of thing. And in your book, you talk about that was a moment where you're holding that, that hand and you had this epiphany, just the emotional connection now, with this I'm not living beach. I'm not squeamish, but that was oh, squeamish. That, I am squeamish. That was this yellow, waxy, actual human hand. It was a, and then you pull the tendons. And, and, and I started ah! I, I started imagining uh, this guy held his, his lover's hand, and uh, he ate with it, and... Picked his nose. Oh, no, that's right. That's that's why we did that sequence. How difficult was that to convince PBS to let you dissect a hu an actual human hand and then pull the tendons oh, out? Oh, not easy. Nobody wanted to air that. And so the, um, <laughs> and the interesting thing about that was we wanted something that really captured the humanity of it, despite its grossness. Well, it did. And it was short, though. You know, so it was only 15 seconds. So we didn't really kind of, didn't hit you in the head with it. I mean, we just did 15 Honestly, seconds. Honestly... 
it was 15 seconds I missed the first three or four times until I could watch. So that was a time lapse of a four-hour dissection. Wow. Time lapse to 15 seconds. Did you have any uh, input into the animations that were done in those oh, series? Oh, yeah, tons. In fact, Neil, yeah. I got to say, you know, I started out with the Walking with Dinosaurs, and that was pretty archaic from the 90s or the early 2000s. The animations and the demonstrations of the anatomy and then the environments, you'd see the crew and then you'd see it was a floodplain. It was some of the best I've ever seen. So hats off to you for that. Thanks. Yeah, we worked really hard on that. And I was um so I spent about eighty hours in front of camera to get you know, to get the three hours of the show because it was all I had lib. And a thousand hours in the editing. And then a lot more time in the editing and then uh, they did the editing but uh, you know a lot of consulting on the on the graph computer graphics because we knew that would be critical to tell the story it was right? brilliant, brilliant thank you yeah and that team the by the way the guys who the folks who did that um those animations won an emmy for that they should they cool. well deserved so, well tell me about that moment with the hand and what you were trying to get across there the the yeah, with... the point is a hand is the hand is a surprising connection among all of us. So, so and you realize that when you're in the anatomy lab. So I was in the anatomy lab teaching human anatomy. The year we found Tiktaalik, the teaching I was doing was for medical students teaching human anatomy. And you know when you do a human dissection, it doesn't really feel like a human initially. You remove the sheet, you open up the chest and the abdomen, you see some guts, you see a liver, you see a gallbladder. Uh, you know, but okay. now there's nothing, nothing there. It's really kind of not until you unwrap the hand. When you unwrap the hand, you really all of a sudden realize, wow, this is a person who held a coffee mug. Wait, why is it wrapped? Hand. Why is the hand wrapped like a mummy? Well, because they, they keep it fresh. Well, they keep it um, wet and fresh so it doesn't desiccate. With, wait, you know, with so. formaldehyde or something of that sort? Uh, other compounds that are less dangerous. Right, right. Well, a lot of water. So it's keep it hydrated, right? Keep it hydrated so you can dissect it easily. Um, <laughs> and then... Um, yeah, and it's really seeing the hand really changes the whole because we have this deep human. It's so it's so much part of our humanity, you know. Um, and so I think we wanted we wanted to capture that in the show because that's an entree to finding a, a fish version of a hand in the fossil record. And because the parallel we wanted to draw was between seeing the human hand in dissection for the first time, which was a deep connection to our humanity, but then seeing the fish hand of Tiktaalik, which we discovered, which is its own profound connection. You know, our connection to fish. Well, there's a beautiful animation sequence where you take the hand, the human hand, and then you you walk us back through time uh, in that it's animation until yeah. you get to the fin. It's very clear. And just stacking them up like that. But wait, but beautiful... what is the first fish that is, the fins are fins, but it has one molecule hint that it's going to evolve into a hand? Oh, lowfin fish. I mean, you look at lungfish or coelacanths or any of these things which are deeper in the tree than TikTok. They already have a humerus. You know, they're already, they're already on that their way. They get a fleshy fin lobe, you know, out of the ooze and born to cruise. <laughs> they got, oh, I, I was yeah. waiting for you to like, yeah. see the shirt. I like the t-shirt, right? Out of the, you know, they're, they're ready to roar. You have Drew Eustonopteron in there. By the time you get to that creature, Eustonopteron, you already have a creature that has humerus, radius, ulna, and so forth. Um, not really a wrist per se. But no, there's a whole bunch of creatures. Particularly, it's in the lobe fin part of the world. And again, these lobe fins compared to a swimming fin, is for most likely benthic. Um, yeah, movement. a lot of benthic. Yeah, exactly. A lot of benthic activities. I mean, although they can be used them for other things, it's largely sort of... What a, does the coelacanth use them for? Are they benthic? They or? actually swim in the merino. They, they actually paddle. They, they actually walk in water. Oh, right, <laughs> So they're, right. they do a, yeah, they're, they're, it's kind of a right. swimming in water using, like a human. Now, surely with the volumes of papers you've written uh, and the massive amount of data that you've ingested in your 
mammalian brain there. Have you thought of or, or have come to some sort of an epiphany on evolution or or something that relates to your life? Uh, I mean, I, I think that of all the people I'd like to ask, you just have absorbed so much. Is there anything that, that strikes you as uh, something you could share? Yeah, well, it's two things. So one is, and it's sort of the topic of my newest book, which is called Some Assembly Required, right. which is the inventions that creatures use for the great revolutions in the history of life, whether it's feathers for flight or lungs for walking on, in land, living in air, those inventions always appear earlier and in a different form in other creatures. Right. So lungs appeared well before animals took their first steps on land, large, and they were used by aquatic creatures as an accessory organ to breathe air when the oxygen content in the water wouldn't cut it. Likewise, feathers. Feathers are as well before you know creatures ever took their first you know first flaps. So form precedes function. Yeah. So the structures always just repurposing. Structures evolve in one context. And then they're redeployed to be used in another one. And evolution couldn't happen any other way. If you think about the transition from fish to limbed animal, how many hundreds of features had to change? You'd have to have hundreds of, 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 of mutations at the same time in the history of life. Lungs, wrists, necks, you know, all that stuff, flat heads. But the reality is all that stuff appeared before in fish living in water. Well, you state this in the very beginning of your book, Some Assembly Required. Yeah, and so basically it's a shift, you know. Yeah. Now that, so that, in terms of the conceptual shift, that's kind of the, and you see that with regard to genes, you see that in organs, we see it in the fossil record. It's really powerful and very profound. But when you, when you ask about like, you know, the personal piece of studying the fossil record and thinking about deep time, you know, it gives you, a, it changes how you see the present world. You see the present world as kind of a special case of a long history of lost worlds, you know, of which this will be probably a lost world in a million years. And so um, it really gives <laughs> you a great 10, deal of... about 10,000 years? <laughs> yeah, it might be. I don't want to put a time stamp on it, but um, yeah, for obvious reasons. But, you know, it gives you perspective. You know, you think about every ecosystem has its breaking point and it gives you a sense of humility about the natural world. You know, you think about in terms of geological time, let alone cosmic time, you know, humans in our societies are only sort of a recent blip in the history of life. And, you know, so it gives you that sort of deep time perspective as you approach the, the modern world, which can be humbling. You know, so learning as a scientist is never ending, you know, and it helps to keep a deep sense of humility as you do that, because you're not always going to be right. In fact, if you're doing anything interesting, you're going to be wrong as much, if not more than you're right. Um, but that's the so scientific to, method. That's right. And so you have to be able to approach that openly. And it, sometimes it means confronting your own biases and things. You know, Neil, at the end of uh, The Inner Fish, which I've reread this last week in preparation to talk to you, you, were, you had a moment uh, with the Apollo 8 uh, capsule that you end that book with at the Museum of Science and Industry with your son. And um, you had a moment there. And, yes, I did. Um, I still do. Um, <laughs> uh, can you relive that moment for us? Yeah. What, what, so um, I grew up in like, you know, I was a kid. I was like, what, eight, nine years old when Apollo 11, you know, when, they, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon and Michael Collins circled it. And so, I mean, I grew up in that period. And I remember um, walking through the museum with my own son, who at the time I think was five years old. And we were going through there, and uh, it was one of my first really detailed, in-depth visits to the museum. It's a great place to take kids. I didn't spend a whole ton of time there, but this time I did. And we went to what's called the Henry Crown Space Center, all tucked way in the back. 
And there was this beat up thing. It was a space capsule sealed in plexiglass. And it says the real thing. And it was the real thing, Apollo 8. And it was the command module of Apollo 8, all beat up. You could look inside to see where Borman, Lovell, and uh, Anders sat Christmas 1968 for the first trip of humans leaving the gravitational pull of Earth to circle the moon. And I remember watching this on TV when I was eight years old. I was standing there because this is like a, you know, a testament to human exploration, knowledge. I mean, great. Think about the optimism it took for people to build right. a space capsule to do that. And the optimism it took for people to get in the damn thing. And, and, and to have analog circuits. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, it's like my, my, my telephone has more computational power than the entire Apollo program. And, you know, I mean, and so they had, they had to do that. And um, I started tearing up and crying. My son's like looking at me like, what's good, dad? Is he okay? Is he you okay, dad? You sick? I'm like, you know, tears are beginning to form in my eye. I'm like, no, no, no. This is humans went to the moon. He's like looking at me like I'm from Mars. But I wanted to capture that moment. It was funny. I was like, because that's what the scientific discovery is. Many people fill the gaps in our knowledge with fear or with uh, suspicion or conspiracy or what have you, right? But scientists don't do that. They fill it with hope and optimism and learning. And that's kind of what that whole episode really meant to me. And so the funny thing about that, that's the epilogue for the book, right? Um, I didn't write that epilogue when I first submitted the book. I was copy editing the book at the time. So when I took my son to the museum, I was copy editing Inner Fish, the original draft. And I had no epilogue at the time. In fact, well, I did have an epilogue, but it really was bad. And so um, I, uh, and then I, I remember walking home with him thinking, I have my epilogue, you know, I'm gonna talk about the power of science and what scientific thinking is, and then the beauty of seeing these deep connections we have to the rest of life on our planet. And it all came together for me in the walk home. Right, that essential optimism. Are you mm. optimistic now that uh, like with this scourge that's happening to our planet, uh, is science going to save us, Neil? I don't well, know. Wait, wait, um, wait, wait, hold <laughs> on. i got to say something. Last uh, week... Come on, uh, that's... No, wait, that's, hold come on, on Dave. But you're, gonna, hey, hey. you're broaching into my question, which I'm going to be asking oh. in a second. Oh. <laughs> okay. Don't fight, you guys. Everybody back off. <laughs> no, we, we fight all the time, Neil. It's part of yeah. the thing yeah. we do. All right, you, but I have a couple other TikTok questions, too. Okay. The UN general came out last week and for the first time said... We are killing our environment. It's time to have the world remove itself from fossil fuels. And, and that, besides our new administration, that gave me so much hope as, as a human being that that declaration was made. Fact, we are destroying our environment. Fact, we need to remove fossil fuels from the planet. I think that's inevitable that's going to happen, too. It just takes... I mean, the thing that, I, that gives me a lot of optimism, but there's reasons, you know, to be cautious. But... The thing that gives me optimism is that when humans are motivated, we're incredibly ingenious. So I'm gonna, let me give you an example, which was on all our minds right now. Jan, Mid-January of last year, the Chinese published the, you know, the gene sequence for the SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes um, COVID-19, right? Coronavirus. Less than a year later, we have vaccines. Yeah. Are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, really? I mean, it used to take decades to do vaccines. Just yeah. think about the technological power and creativity of people. To, we're not one vaccine. We're going to have a whole bunch of vaccines. Yeah. You know, so you think about the creativity when people are motivated. You know, it's huge. And, the, and, and I think, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it takes, um, you know, challenging circumstances to bring about human um, human creativity, not not always, but sometimes it does. 
you know, so I have, I, I, you can call me a utopian, but I tend to think that there are a lot of um, technological answers to the situation I we agree. face. Now. Science will save the world. I did. It's doing it now with COVID and hopefully, yeah. you know, with climate change, with uh, habitat and species loss, with these other things. We just need to be motivated to do it. And uh, but human ingenuity is just, you just never underestimated. It's pretty remarkable. Ray, what's your question? Well, I have two quick ones. Do you have, the, before I do the other one, are, <laughs> do you have any other field trips planned? I know you love to be out in the field digging up stuff. Are you still yeah. doing any of that? Yeah, Ted and I had a, well, so we did Antarctica for a couple of years. Well, that's right. We have an Antarctic expedition supposedly was coming up last year. I got canceled by COVID. You know, maybe another one this year. We're definitely going to go back to the Arctic at some point. And you're looking at Devonian rocks still? Devonian yeah, stuff? Yeah, a little bit different in age from the yeah, same area as TikTok, but we'd probably look at a slightly different age. I hope you come to Alaska at some point and look at the Devonian rocks. Oh, uh, yeah, I'd love to do that. Do you always have to look for red rocks? Are Devonian rocks always red? Uh, they can be green. They can be gray. No, they can, you know, they can vary a bit. So it's basically a, a mud and siltstone. Yes, right. So, yeah. Sandstone, siltstones, and yeah. shales. So, Neil, what is the coolest fossil you've ever found in a museum, on the ground, in a backroom collection? Well, the, the most amazing fossil I've ever encountered and I published on was a salamander, a Jurassic Age salamander from China, which, you know, when it was, uh, it was split from a shale, and you can see it's an early, but you can see the filaments on its gills. You could see its stomach contents. You could see the soft tissue is preserved. It was the most remarkable thing I ever seen. We published a paper in Nature on it. Oh, about 15, 20 years ago. What's her name? Chinurpatan. 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 The other thing that I really loved finding was earliest uh, frogs in the fossil record in the Jurassic of Arizona. Um, Tiktaalik was up there. Early mammals. So you know, early in my career, I was really interested in. Early mammals, Triassic, Jurassic kind of things, or origin of dinosaurs, origin of turtles. That tremendous discovery in Nova Scotia. Yeah, the early mammal-like creature, early mammal-like reptiles. We did wow. that. No, I've had, I've been, I've been lucky to find a lot of different kind of things. I've been focused on the Devonian mostly. At some point, I want to go deeper in time to look for early vertebrates. You know, like a uh, late Cambrian, early Ordovician, that kind of thing. I want to ask you, Sixiagic. The other name, the Inuit name, is it mm. Sixagiagic? What does that mean? I couldn't even say. It's a large fresh. It's their answer for a kind of a large freshwater fish that they the had. So West... Tiktaalik and the mean the same thing then. Exactly. We chose Tiktaalik because it's easier to say for Westerners. Well, Tiktaalik is is an Inuit word for like a cod. It's a nuktatuk for yeah, it's like a burbot kind of fish burbot, in the Western. The burbot, yeah. freshwater burbot. fish. Okay, Neil, if you could time travel, going back. Back in time only, when would you want to go back to and what would you want to see? Yeah, I'd like to go back to the late Cambrian. I'd like to see the earliest vertebrates and what they looked like. I'd like to see the earliest members of all the major phyla as they're doing their evolution thing. I'd like to swim in those waters. And the, the, the one thing about swimming in those waters, nothing's going to hurt you. There are no math. It's not like if I <laughs> well, swam in the Devonian. Well, wait a minute. Devonian, and a normal keris might filter feed on uh, your leg. Yeah, he might filter feed the particles <laughs> in my hair. No, it could take a bite out of your butt, man, with those little... The last few weeks, there have been these mainstream news articles on Anomal Karras being either a uh, filter feeder or... Really? Yeah. Well, because they have the rasping piece. 
So the, I would swim, I, it's basically you swim in those waters without worrying too much. You go in the Devon, you're going to get eaten by Tiktaalik and its relatives. You go in the Cretaceous and Jurassic, you just, you're, in the, you're in the food chain. You're not in the food chain in the Cambrian, and there's so much cool stuff to see and learn from. So that's kind of when I'd go. I would have thought you'd been a Devonian guy. Now, that's Paleo Nerd Central, right? Going to the wow. Cambrian. Yeah. You know, I could look at dinosaurs now. Nah. Yeah. I could look at early mammoths now. Nah. I, I could look at TikTok now. Nah. I want to go to the Cambrian. I want to accidentally worms. step on a hallucinogenia, <laughs> is what yeah, I want to right. do. And swim with Opabinia. Snorkel at the Burgess. Now, how do you pronounce, uh, how do you pronounce, is it Antiarchy or Antiarchy? Antiarch. It's a placoderm, a Devonian placoderm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we find lots of those. Now, there's a funny reason why that was named incorrectly by uh, Edward Drinker Cope. And I just told Ray about this today, that it means opposite anus. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> Ass in the wrong place. Cope thought the... the Fitting for Cope. <laughs> <laughs> he thought that the, the breathing spherules was an anus. Is that correct? Yeah. And now, there are a lot of things that Cope did that were not quite correct. <laughs> Uh, we asked this of all the guests. Now, science has been under attack recently, especially during the pandemic, because political agenda has trumped scientific fact, and yes, pun intended. The anti-science, it's, it's run rampant because social media spreads lies and conspiracy theories, resulting in people believing these political opinions are truths, right? I feel like we're in the dark ages again. So as a paleontologist and an educator, what can you do to counter the lies and, and promote science? Celebrate the scientific method. Make people understand that facts are real and opinions are just that, somebody's point of view. Yeah, I mean, you, got, you, have, you look at this, the process of scientific discovery, and, and that's one thing I, when I'm, and then whenever I'm in this zone, the first thing I return to is talking about scientific discovery, being in the field, finding new things. How do we, we made predictions about where to look for a flat-headed fish with arms. And we spent six years in the Arctic and we found it. And when you tell the stories of discovery, it not only shows how we find facts, but how we use ideas to make predictions and to discover new things. And so what I do is to counter that, I usually focus on the process of science because the process of science and discovering things is essentially a human enterprise, right? It's people tr struggling, people succeeding, people failing, people learning from their failures, people getting lucky, people getting unlucky, all that stuff. That's in every expedition we ever do. And so when you convey you know, scientific discovery and its power, um, and then you convey the set of facts that we work so hard to find, um, it does change the game because you're tethering it to a human story, not some cold scientific textbook story. Now, does that work in every case? No. But certainly when you have other examples that are really huge, like people building rocket ships to return asteroid fragments to the Earth. You know, people building little um, satellites that can go by Pluto and leave the, leave the pull of the, uh, the solar system. You know, people designing vaccines and, and testing them on tens of thousands of people in less than a year that will save countless numbers of lives. Once you can you show them the process of discovering what happens when you do that, it will change minds and turn heads. What it won't do, it won't change political figures uh, from denying fact. So we live in, a, in, in, a, in an area where facts uh, and evidence is under challenge everywhere. And the only thing to do is to double down. It's like you can ignore your doctor most of your life except when you're sick, right? <laughs> <laughs> then all of a sudden your doctor becomes the most important person in the world. You know, and that's true of scientists, whether it's global change or, you know, um, any of these other issues that face us. Hey, you know, uh, social media does get a lot of bad rap 
but uh, uh, Neil, you're active on uh, Twitter, and I've seen your stuff a lot on Facebook, and I've seen a whole lot of TikTok memes these days. Mm, all over the place. They're all over the place, and some of them have your face. Do you have anything to do with those memes? Nothing. No. What happens? The only thing I have to do with them is people send them to me. And, uh, you know, uh, there's some of these memes might have a million likes and things. And they're usually like, why did TikTok leave the water? 2020 sucks kind of thing. What I think is that social, there's a good side. There's an upside to social media, too. You know, that uh, we could connect okay. and actually, you know, connecting with you on this uh, podcast has been a real uh, learning occasion for me and just fun. And a lot of people are going to listen to this. So thank you for joining us. Ben. Great. Well, thanks for having me. It's been good talking to you guys. Man, that was great. Neil was uh, very approachable. He was laid back. He was fun. He was just like hanging out in the living room here with us, man. <laughs> Why? What did you expect? Well, I, I, I get intimidated sometimes. You know, I, I'm a sensitive artist guy, and he's a, he's a major force in the world, man. He's doing yeah, revolutionary know, cool things. Thing but one thing you can see from his television shows is that he's personable, and he... And he uh, relates to the everyman. Yeah, he uh, explains uh, that uh, complicated science with enthusiasm and verve. And he's got a, yeah, kind of a sense of humor there. So, yeah, it was fun, man. And he was yeah. very tolerant of uh, our back and forth. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. I, I hope. Did I, uh, did I step on you? Uh, uh, I... You know, it's what we do. Actually, you end up asking the same question that I am. Uh, you know, we're kind of on the How same How weird is that? Thought. Yeah. Is that? That's a good thing, right? So, we... But we start peppering in all these little, but, 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 but there's... And then the, he was right at one hour. We got it done, but uh, no, yeah, we, it was good. We ended on an optimistic note, you yeah. know. Science yeah. is going to save us, and you know, sure, there's challenges, but uh, but hey, uh, Neil was a lot of fun, man. We talked lobe fin fish, got into deep genetics and all kind of cool stuff, and he's still. Yeah. I didn't get so to ask things. my question about the uh, therinodon. Therinaxodon. Thank you, Thrinaxodon, which it's is this little um, kind of a proto-mammal, cynodont. A proto-mammal, yeah. A cynodont from the, they appeared just after the Great Permian extinction in the beginning of the Triassic. And his show on PBS Nova, Inner Reptile, uh, show that these were burrowing animals. That's most likely why they survived this extinction. But they say that this is the animal that shows the first proto-hair, possibly as these little bone, these holes in the bone of the snout as whiskers. So the first mammalian hair could have been started out as whiskers. Yeah, those proto-mammals uh, show up, uh, I think, actually, in the uh, Carboniferous, and uh, they flourish. What? And then, yeah, they're, they're, they're ancient. Our, our synapsid uh, uh, elders... Right. Are, are way back in time. Really? Yeah, we learned that with uh, Christian Sidor. I don't have the best memory. Anyways. <laughs> you know what? Some of this stuff goes in one ear and out the same one. And some of those synodonts make it into the Triassic, and that's what you're talking about. With this. Yeah, I remember hair, man, you know? <laughs> 
No, I'm uh, talking about hair on our mammalian ancestors, right. not the hair you've lost as an old man. Yeah, as an old man. So anyway, I'd like to find more about that. Uh, you know, what makes us human and, and where do those traits... We found out what makes our hands human today, but I want to find out uh, other parts of us uh, and, and where those traits evolved from and began. We have lots of experts we could turn to, and we'll keep Let's on digging. We'll keep on uh, paleo nerding on, man. And look, look, you know, there's something that happened. The big, great yellow G-Class star has appeared in your uh, have, neck of the woods. I literally have not seen it in like, you know, a week and a half. So I'm going to go out and frolic in the sunshine. You go do that. And uh, I'm going to go uh, hunker down in my home and start washing surfaces. Yeah. All right. Hunker down. Uh, hey, uh, Ray, um, I just want to ask you something. Um, uh, and I what? know this might be embarrassing. Oh, no. Are you a paleo nerd? God, boy, here, here's that question again. Dave, you know the answer to that, man. I am proudly a paleo nerd. I, I wear it literally on my sleeves, man. It's, it's tattooed there, paleo nerd. I am a paleo Dave, are you a paleo nerd? Yeah, and I'm going to give you a shameless plug. Your nerdism is apparent in the online Ray Troll store at <laughs> trollart.com. You can see all of Ray's paleo nerdism and own it of yourself on a t-shirt. And go watch a David Strassman video while you're at no, it on no, YouTube. No, 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 this no. This is not about dude, me. This is dude, about you no, and paleo no, no. nerdism. We're going to share the limelight. There's no, there's no paleo nerd on my in my life. You uh, have a lot of really life. cool YouTube videos. Hold on. You know there is? Wait, hold on. You have a YouTube hold channel. On. There is three dinosaurs that sing Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, and those are three triceratops, and if you look at them closely... The skin texture, I tried to make very reptilian, and their colors I got from a paleo book uh, many years ago, the first book that showed dinosaurs having colors and, and beautiful camouflage patterns, unlike the early gray reptilian colors that uh, Knight painted back. Uh, so in, if I uh, go Googling for Strassman, or, or how, how can I find that video, man? Uh, I don't know. Probably Google three triceratops singing bohemian rhapsody something like that okay all right well i i know that shows your paleo nerd chops man so yeah so yes i am a paleo nerd always fun a You're pleasure ready. ray and uh goodbye from ojai california and from beautiful ketchikan by the sea where it, the sun is shining now it's raymond trouble saying see ya see ya thanks for being a paleo nerd help us spread the word of science Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. 